There's a lot of people now who think if only they had the generational wealth transfer like those trust fund babies had, their life would be wonderful. (laughs) And the fact is, those people who got that wealth don't feel that way. And I shouldn't say that. Some people do. And and some people are 100% grateful. And they might have even felt like they were entitled to it. I mean, they they were entitled to it. They got it. You know, that's that's the way it is. There are some people, though, that receive it and, and feel guilty. Like I, you know, the sperm bank concept, you know, that I only got this money because of whom I was birthed to. And I don't deserve it. Right. You know, I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And they feel bad about it. And what ends up happening is a lot of times they throw it away. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone. And we're back continuing this amazing conversation about families, wealth, financial therapy, and what does it all mean? What are we doing? How are we trying to help people? And so Tara, I'm so glad to continue this conversation about the role of financial therapy in family life and especially around family wealth transition. So uh, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. You know, you work with a number of affluent high net worth families in your financial planning practice. And so the issue of money moving from one generation to the next is something that comes up pretty regular in your work, right? Right. Yep. In the past, we've talked about that oftentimes you're not just working with one generation. You may be working with two or three generations at a time. And uh, that can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, can it? Yeah. And even, you know, that each generation has its own experiences. And so even that first generation is the first generation that has wealth. You know, they didn't really get much support from their from their parents. That's why they are the first generation, right? Like the parents probably didn't pay for college, probably, you know, raised them until they were 18 or 20 or something. And, and then they went on. Although I'll, I'll throw in there that there's multicultural aspects to this that make it even more complicated and different that I'm, I'm going to set aside or maybe put a pin in. We might want to come back or we might, we, it would be nice if we came back and talked about those multicultural um, things that are a little bit yeah. different. So right now what I'm talking about is, you know, white centric, uh, European centric kind of family dynamic and expectations from generation to generation. So, you know, the United States especially is made up of immigrants. And so immigrants came over and they, probably literally had nothing and they had to work really hard to get something and and they may have accumulated enough to have something that passed on to their um, kids. But depending on when they came over, it sort of depends. So like my grandparents, my great grandparents came over sort of late 1800s, early 1900s. And so they didn't pass anything on to my grandparents and my grandparents left a little bit 
to my parents, but it was really my parents that was the first generation that accumulated wealth. And um, and so I did grow up, grow up in that affluency. So I'm really sort of second generation um, affluency, but depending on how you look at it, um, in a lot of ways, I'm a, a second generation accumulator. And there's a good chance that for my parents, the, you know, my generation probably will be getting something. Um, and so there's a lot of things that go on for them and a lot of things that go on for me. And for me, my peers, you know, some of them are the first generation and some of them are the second generation. So something that happens with the first generation is they didn't have anything. They didn't have support from their, their family, their, their parents. And now they, they have the opportunity to make their kids life easier. And so they think that that's a good thing. But sometimes that can be problematic in and of itself. You know, you you buy them the car, you pay for their college, you know, they get married, they want to go into a house that they can't afford the down payment. You provide them with that down payment, um, you know, and you're trying to support them to have a better life than you had and to not have the struggles. And I have clients who say, I don't want them to struggle like I struggled. And I also have other clients who are sort of that first generation that say, I want my kids to struggle like I did. I want them, I don't want them to be trustful babies. I want them to, to have that struggle. So that first generation can be on either side of that thought or opinion. And the fact is, it's really not an either or. Like everything in life, it's sort of a balance of, right? And so it's really that, yes, your child, everybody, in order to have purpose in life does need to have some struggle and some challenge. That is part of the human experience. And when you take the opportunity away of having some challenges, you know, the hero's journey out of somebody's life, it, it leaves them a little lost. And so there does need to be some struggle. Does there need to be a lot of struggle? Should should you not, you know, pay for anything? Should you, you know, you have all of this money and they're struggling and, you know, how do you, and I'll tell you as a parent, sitting with my child as they struggle through pain is, I've realized one of the most important things that I can do as a parent and one of the hardest things to do as a parent. And to understand, like, when is it my job to sit with them through their pain and figure out the answer to the problem? And when is it my opportunity, my um, privilege to support them to, to sort of minimize, to have a safety net and to minimize that pain? And, and it's a, in my opinion, it's a very fine line and you can't, there's no rule of thumb for it. You have to deal with each issue as it comes up. Yeah, you have to, I don't know, the word that's coming to mind, become reflective and curious about what's the right approach for this situation with this child. And it may be different with this child versus that child. And that's something that you, we confront a lot in financial planning is what's equal, what's fair in taking care of children and using financial resources to support children, adult children, especially you know, where we have this underlying assumption culturally that adult children are supposed to be financially self-sufficient. And that's an interesting one, too, because that is actually a European white centric thought. You know, most of the world is actually more tribal and more community based. 
you know, in this country, we are very, and this gets back to family systems, which we love to talk about, um, that, you know, in that an individual is an individual, but they're also a member, an individual within a community, whether it be a fi- uh, family community, uh, you know, a, a geographic community, a, a country, um, y- you have both. And so, and one of the things that we struggle with in the United States is that we are, you know, grounded in the belief that you should need to take care of yourself. You need to be independent. You should not get support from other people. We a hundred percent, you know, cowboy mentality is how I think about it, which is true. And sometimes you need the support of your community. We all, nobody ever gets through life without requiring somebody's help at some time. I'm with you. I I have this blog post brewing in my head, and it's called The Myth of Financial Independence. Yeah. And I'm just curious, as I say those words, what comes to mind for you without me saying anything else? Oh, interesting. So financial independence is actually when it, we, we like to use that term financial independence instead of like retirement, because really what retirement is about. And when we say retirement, really what we're saying is we're trying to become financially independent of having a job and that, you know, our assets are going to be paying our bills. And so it doesn't have to be tied to retirement. It could be tied to, I mean, you know, it could happen at any time. And also what does that mean? Because when you're thinking about financial independence, you're getting income and you have expenses. And you need to have that in balance, right? Your your spending plan has to match your uh, income. And when it doesn't, you get out of balance, you get debt, you have problems, you know, that that's its own little thing. But if you have financial wellness, you have that balance of you have income and you have expenses and they're in balance with each other. But where is that income coming from? So, you know, the concept of retirement is that you accumulate a massive income that provides, I mean, a massive wealth that you have invested that produces income for you. And in the old days, before the 70s, 80s, you you might get a pension where your, your company is, you know, the one who comes up with how to give you that income in your retirement to, to balance that income expenses thing. And then everybody wanted to have control of it so that they could maximize their returns in the stock market. And now we have the results of that <laughs> and that it's not as easy. And maybe it was a little bit better to have that safety net of the patient pension, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but anyway, so that's, but, but that money doesn't have to come from wealth that you accumulated. It can come from something else. And maybe it comes from, family wealth. Maybe it comes from, you know, I don't know what, but you know, there's how you get your income when you become financially independent is, is a whole thing in and of itself. And the traditional thought is that you save and invest and save and invest. And then you have your own pot that makes you financially independent. Um, but how much you need for your income also depends on how much you spend, right? So the whole fire movement is keep those expenses super low so that you don't need to have much of an income in order to be, have that financial independence. Like you take control of your expenses in a you know major way so that, that you don't need as much income and that gives you more freedom, maybe, potentially. It does sort of narrow your choices, but that's another topic too. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, right. So I think part of what we're talking about is at one level, it's all trade-offs in financial planning. From my perspective, it's all informed trade-offs. And, you know, it's hard to see all the potential trade-offs if you do this, what the consequence yeah. of that is. Oh, but, for sure. You know, I think when we think about financial independence, it's if that's part of our cultural narrative, but then we grow up in an affluent family where we don't have, you know, we are truly a trust fund child. Like we're the benefactor of that and we don't have to work for income. Like that can create some real psychological dissonance. Yes. Right. Yes. Like I don't have to live out the story that is the collective primary story, which is you have to kind of launch yourself figure out how to get a job, start making money and grow into financial security, right? Which is, I feel like a dominant narrative culturally, but we know that there's minority stories that are also going on, both on the affluent side and in the really kind of the poverty side. Yeah. Um, where you know, but, the story in poverty is like, you'll never get out of this. This is generational. Forget it. Why bother? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I listened to one of your podcasts about that, which was really interesting. Yeah. And the other thing is, right, when um, a lot of parents and especially it's really interesting because, you know, there's this, supposedly this big generational wealth transfer that's about to happen because the baby boomers right. are starting to pass away and they accumulate it. And also the thing that sort of blows me away about that is they accumulated their wealth because they came out of the Depression and so they learned a penny saved is a penny earned. And so they learned how to, you know, sort of the fire technology, right? The keep your expenses really low, invest for the future. And, and they amass and, and they probably overdid it, right? Like me, I, in my story from last, uh, session right. that we talked right. is that like I have anxiety about, spending and so did they and that's how they accumulated their wealth and now on their deathbed they wish that they had spent more maybe um and their children are definitely looking at them thinking that was idiotic that they didn't spend any of that or enjoy any of that during their their life some some kids actually are um heartbroken and shut down because they you know their parents didn't enjoy it and now and now they don't have their parents and they, as a substitute, they have their wealth and they look at that wealth and they just shut down and they can't, they can't enjoy it. They can't use it. I, I actually had a client who I had to fire because she wouldn't come in and she wouldn't <laughs> do what needed to be done because every time she looked at her money, she shut down, shut down. And that was before I took financial therapy. I think I would have probably handled that situation a little bit differently today than I did back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great, though. This is why we're talking about it, because just people that are listening, like, either they've been on the client side of it where they've had a planner that's fired them, or they're a planner that, like, is like, yeah, that's me. That's what I would do. So let's really slow down right here, because this is a great case example of what we're talking about. is generational wealth yeah. transfer. Tell us more about this client. Tell us a little bit more about your mindset at that time, and now how your mindset has shifted and how you would work with this person in that scenario now. I just can't help you said, you know, like they have their, their parents' wealth, but they don't have their parents. And, uh, you know, my attachment lens just goes off. It's like money is no replacement for an attachment relationship. No. And if you never formed a healthy attachment with your parents, 
and then you are left with their wealth, like that that's a recipe for all kinds of problems. And yeah. a lot of affluent parents can't understand why their kids aren't maybe grateful to be getting yeah. the assets. Yeah. When they you know don't have a you know, they have a relationship. So sorry, I all these little that, things are well, and that's actually another thing. And if we could, I'm going to even write it down. Um, uh, uh, how how parents, you know, work really hard to get money to give to their kids, and then the kids are like not grateful, and yeah, and a whole a whole bunch of stuff. So that, we'll talk about that in a minute because I have a lot. I have like. I mean, I, and I grew up in a community that is full of kids that end up that way. And, and they have a, a well, wide range of reactions to, to wealth and receiving wealth and having wealth right. and all of that. So, so we'll go into that, but this client, um, so yeah, so it was when I was actually just starting to learn about financial therapy, I think I was, had just joined the FTA because actually what I told her was, I can't help you. You need, you know, financial therapy. I gave her three references to financial therapy to, to take care of her um, relationship with this money and her grief right. of her, her parents passing because it wasn't in my wheelhouse to be able to do that. So I gave her three um, referrals and, um, but I had, she was a client for, I don't know, a year or two and I would give her recommendations and she wouldn't get back to me and she wouldn't call me back. And so I wasn't doing anything and I cannot charge, I ethically cannot charge somebody money for not doing work. Right. Even when I do the work and I give her the recommendations, the fact that there's there's zero value in what I am doing in my mind. Yeah. And so if there's zero value, and you and I have talked about this, I have this part that cannot charge people. I will undercharge for the value that I'm giving. I never want anybody, I don't want to feel like you're paying more than the value that I'm giving. And if I feel that way, I have to I have to step away because my my parts show up, you know, go on alert, not okay. Like make this not happen. So because she wasn't getting value, I, I could not work with her because I felt it was unethical taking her money without, you know, anything actually changing in her um, financial situation. So I said, you know, I can't work with you. Right. Here are three people you might want to talk to that might be helpful, you know, and if at any point you want to engage again, you're welcome to call back. So that's what happened with her. And I don't, I don't know what happened since then. I, I wish her well. I hope that it all worked out for her. And uh, yeah, so, so, and this is the thing is that people think generational wealth transfer is great. And like, there's a lot of people now who think if only they had the generational wealth transfer, like those trust fund babies had, their life would be wonderful. <laughs> and the fact is those people who got that wealth don't feel that way. Do not feel that way. And, and I shouldn't say that some people do. And, and some people are a hundred percent grateful that they got it. And they might've even felt like they were entitled to it for some, you know, they, they, you know, and, and I mean, they, they were entitled to it. They got it. You know, that's, that's the way it is. There are some people though that receive it and, and think, are like feel guilty. Like I, you know, the sperm bank concept, you know, that I only got this money because of whom I was birthed to. 
and I don't deserve it. You know, I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And they feel bad about it. And what ends up happening is a lot of times they throw it away. Basically, they overspend it. They make bad financial decisions. They they feel guilty about having it. So they just try to get rid of it. Um, And then there's other people who see it and think and and the experience. So what happens when people get well, typically, is that they work really hard. You know, they get they get an education, they go to get a good job, they do the best that they can, they work long hours. And so this is sort of the world that I grew up in. I grew up in the CEO world and the, you know, um, Washington crew and, and that kind of thing. And so dads were gone way more than they were home. And it was primarily dads, but there were definitely moms. And and since then, I've, I've become aware there's lots more moms now <laughs> that are still, but they're still fitting the same mold, right? Where they're working really hard. Still the same patterns are the same. Yeah. The gender is shifting. The behavioral patterns and presence are the same as the previous generation. Welcome to 2024. And thank you for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'd like to take you behind the scenes of therapy-informed financial planning, where we talk about emotions. We talk about retirement plans. We talk about painful family experiences with money and so much more. There's no need to hide things that leave you feeling embarrassed or ashamed about your financial situation. This year, we watch couples and individuals work through financial anxiety and start talking lovingly about money. We saw couples and individuals take action towards their goals like closing a business that no longer fit them, paying off debt that felt crushing, increasing their comfort with their realized wealth, and ultimately overcoming some of those financial secrets that have been plaguing the relationship. Ultimately, the best part was seeing smiles return to our clients' faces about life, relationships, and money. This is why we do therapy-informed financial planning. I invite you to make 2024 the year you start therapy-informed financial planning. Check the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute consultation. And I'm going to say it's not just in wealthy communities, it's across the board that, and especially for men, and, and, you know, this is one thing that I've actually been hearing more about that I think is really interesting is this shift of, you know, the what men were supposed to be before, and now they're supposed to be something different, yet we really haven't gotten rid of that old one. And the same is true for women. So what women were supposed to be before is different than what they're supposed to be now, but we really haven't gotten rid of the old model either. And so everybody is has feet in two different things of expectations, two, two different sets of expectations, and you really can't win for trying. Like an example that I recently heard about was um, somebody who was doing research on um, body images and weight and, and how that affects your psychology and stuff. And she interviewed a whole bunch of people and she, you know, when, when women go through puberty, things happen or, or they don't, <laughs> you know, they either, you know, like start to gain weight and, you know, their body changes or it doesn't. And, and the people whose bodies change, their feedback that they get is that they're getting fat. And if your body doesn't change, then you, you look like a boy. And so it doesn't matter which way you go, like you get criticized by somebody for both. And then you have to figure out and try to comprehend that, right? And for different people, it's going to be different. And back to your comment about how each child is different. 
Absolutely. And what I feel it comes back to is every human has a certain amount of capacity to deal with things, to deal with decisions, to deal with pain, to deal with whatever. And so like pain, sitting with my child who's in pain, one of the calculations I have to figure out is how much capacity does she have? And frankly, I want her to have as much capacity as she can because then she'll be the most resilient later. But it's sort of like, I think of, um, and I'm blanking on it, but you know, uh, the um, how to become an expert in anything is that you have to be in your, your uncomfortable zone, but you can't be too far or else it'll break and you won't get there. But if you're constantly just a little bit out of your comfort zone, you will constantly have improvements and you will make progress forward. So this child in pain, I want her to have some capacity. I want her to, to have that pain so that she can have more capacity so she can have resilience. But I don't want her to get so uncomfortable that she breaks down, shuts down. And now, now she's in a bad place that is going to be really hard to come back from. Yeah. I think, uh, the concept that came to my mind is the optimal zone of development. Yeah. Right. Like if you want to Google optimal zone of development and it, it basically shows that like not enough stress, no growth and development, too much stress, right. no growth, like damage. <laughs> Yeah. There's a balance point. And so I think that that's really important. And as parents, as employers, being able to be mindful of that for each person that we're with is really challenging. I was talking with someone recently, you know, I'm raising three boys right now and I've got a seven and a five-year-old and we were late to school this morning. And, you know, my mental calculation is it'll take this amount of time to get them out the door, shoes on, socks, snacks, blah, 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 blah. What I wasn't accounting for is that they're five and seven. And they take longer to get their socks and shoes on to get themselves yep. their snacks. They want to have a conversation and it's like, and so like, is that a them problem or a me problem? And it's right. really more me because I'm the responsible party for understanding what their pace and cadence is capable of. And so right. like this whole human business is complicated and that's why we have the work that we're doing. And right. you have these clients that are rejecting their family wealth. And it's like, a lot of people are saying, well, why the heck would you turn down or blow $500,000, $2 million, whatever the number is, doesn't matter. Right. But there's this, they've had all these experiences with their parents. Yeah. Yeah. That's the stage for whether they feel comfortable receiving the wealth or not. And, and part of that, that I didn't really get to is that, you know, the, the dad goes away to create this wealth for his family. But in going right, away to right. get that wealth, he's not with his family. And that, you know, talk about attachment, which you're way better at it than I am. Yeah. But without that quality time together, you're not going to have that attachment. And so what the child grows up thinking is that money means isolation, loneliness, r- rejection, really. And yeah. I don't want any of that. Like you might think that's a great thing. I don't think that's so great. I would have rather had my dad in the house right. playing with me than living in a great house in a great community. Yes. I don't know how many times you've heard that. Like 
you know, I think the research is pretty clear on that. And this is that this is not an anti-striving statement. So no. for those of you that hear like, oh, I can't strive for or work hard, that's not what we're saying, but it's just recognize that in the end, your kids need you and relational time with you more than they need a larger house, a fancier car, or a nicer vacation. This is not anti-nice houses, anti-nice cars, or any of that. It's just, we know from psychological development, kids need that relational contact. And is I think this is where that, that trade, that love and money intersection becomes so powerful. Right, right? yeah. Money becomes a substitute for love. I'm yeah. not there for you, so I will provide these things. And right. this is where our culture just has them so enmeshed right. with each other. Right. Exactly. And and that was my point, too, is that, you know, the dad is thinking he's being a great dad and, you know, doing the best for his family, but misses the point right. that it's not the house, it's not the great education, it's not all of that. And also, I have to say that, okay, back to parts and IFS, you know, there's a part of the dad or the mom or whoever is, is the striver who wants the recognition also and wants the you know, validation that they are important and worthy. And we have definitely equated money and worth in this society. If you don't have money, you are worthless. That's the message we send people. And if you have a lot of money, you are worth a lot. Regardless of who you are, you are worth a lot in our culture. Which is odd. And if you think about it, like as stark as that, it doesn't make any sense. But the fact is, it that's the way we are, right? And, and also back to, you know, KMSI and Klontz money scripts, like that is true. Not all the time. The, I think are you setting up a both and, right? It is culturally true that you are more valuable, like culturally and in an economic sense, we do value people differently. And to some extent, I will say it's probably a good thing. It meaning what we need to differentiate is intrinsic human worth which is equal for all of us. We all have intrinsic human worth. Just by the fact that we're alive, you, we all have equal worth. I'm not better or worse than Tara or the gangbanger in LA or the executive in New York, right? We all, because we're humans, we have an intrinsic fundamental worth. And you realize that, that not everybody agrees with that. Oh, and, I fully accept that everybody agrees with that. And I'll tell you, I'll be transparent and say that I have a part that doesn't believe that. I have a very oh, yeah. big out front part that says, go ahead, absolutely, 100%. But I also have another part that says, really? Like, come on, that gangbanger is not worth as much as Ed. You know, and, and so it is, it's something that I actually think about a lot and meditate on. Like, why is that true? Because I 100% innately in my heart believe that to be true. Right. But in my head, super hard for me to figure that one out. Yeah, well, I think that, right, you just named it, though, it's the heart center that says, I can recognize the intrinsic worth of many people, and I would identify that as self. But that part mm -hmm. that is productive, economically oriented. Yep, says, yeah. Yeah, look, the executive is out there leading the Fortune 100, 500, whatever, Fortune nothing, but they're leading you know, a $50 million company. Okay. Right. And we have a whole economic system. And as humans, we there's a good part of our psychology to value things. Because if we can't mm -hmm. value things, we can't make a discern, discernment about 
whether to buy this or buy that to do this right. or to do that. So I, I know I have gone to like, was well, bad to judge or value things. We need to treat it all equal, which just leaves you in paralysis. <laughs> so if we're not going to pay the person with a high school education, $200,000 a year to work serving burgers. Right. You know, but pay the software engineer that's been working for 15 years, $200,000 a year to develop a software to help whatever. And, but actually, you know, this, it, to, this, to that but, point, you know, one of my favorite things to talk about is like the therapist who saves somebody's life, we pay how much? And the financial planner who does what? We pay how much? I have a problem with that one. Like, how did we come up with those values? <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm a hundred percent with you, right? That's, that is a, a much bigger, hard problem to solve is the market value of different services. Yeah. yeah. And there's inequality. You know, some of us make the argument that teachers are undervalued and undercompensated. Yep. Yeah. And we yeah. would have to go through, we'd have to go through major structural and systemic change to have teachers be paid $200,000 a year, like a, a software yeah. engineer. Yeah, and, and this has been part of my journey. I remember very clearly I was a young professional firefighter and uh, one of my friends from church had just finished, I think, a chemical engineering degree and was working at one of the, the companies there in Houston. And I think he said, yeah, my starting salary is $75,000 a year. And I was like, I'm making 35 and I've seen the salary tables for a firefighter and it'll take me 15 years to get to that. Yeah. Although you had a better pension. I, I did probably have a better pension, but you know, the savings rate. You're not thinking about that. <laughs> you know, I mean, but this, this is that, you know, we're getting a little high minded about all this stuff, but yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. We do live in a social, socially aware environment where different things are valued differently, different career paths that shapes it. And this is why the classic kind of immigrant story is we want you to go after the high income jobs. And, yeah. You know, yeah. They like, I don't, that's not who I am. That's not what I want to do. And so, right. I mean, we, and I think, I think that's is. sort of what's happening with this current generation too, is that we've been sold that you need to go out, get a high paying job, work really hard, get a lot of money, live in a nice community, have a nice car, blah, 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 blah. And we end up living to work instead of working to live. And, and some people have had a taste because they got laid off or, you know, something, or they had to, you know, they, they did something that gave them a taste of the, of life if they didn't work quite so hard. And like COVID was a perfect example of that, right? Like they got a little breather from that rat race and they're like, why the hell would I want to go back to that? Like, that's no fun, you know? And so they're looking for this balance where they're not working that hard. And I think that, and th what I don't know, what I'm curious to find out is, are they willing to take a pay cut to work like three-quarter time? And also, I mean, the research is now showing that working three-quarter time, actually, you get more done. And that's a whole nother thing that, a whole nother podcast that we can talk about. Um, but yeah, you know, are you know, it, it are they willing to not go after that $250,000 a year job in order to have a job that doesn't, isn't so demanding, doesn't have so many hours, doesn't have them on call all the time? 
But then also the flip side of that, I'll tell you as a financial planner that if you're not on call all the time, your clients get pretty upset when they have, they're, you know, having an anxiety attack on, you know, Friday afternoon and you were hoping to get out of the office and, you know, they're anxious and they need it. They need an answer to something right now. And like, what do you do? Do you walk out on that? And, you know, it, each person has to answer their, that own, their own question, but like the, the clients are affect or, you know, the, the other side is affected by the decisions you make is what I'm trying to say. So there's you and how are you taking care of yourself? There's the other side and how are they taking the care of themselves? And how is the other side taking care of the individuals, right? So I was just listening to the Wall Street Journal about the uh, the union disputes um, at the car companies and the unions might go on strike for the first time in like a long time. And really, and I was at my first thought is, you know, the car industry is sort of in a trouble already because there's tons of competition. But then when I looked at it from the other side, I was like, oh, but really these people, you know, are probably underpaid. And, and like, and, and one of their points is that the C-suites have gotten a 40% increase in salary while they got nothing. Right. And, and to some extent, like, even if you take that 40% increase and you divide it with, amongst all the people at the bottom, like that doesn't go very far. <laughs> you know, one person getting a raise is a lot different than everybody getting a raise. So there's, there's a whole lot of math going on is what it, the bottom line is. And nobody likes to do math really. <laughs> um, and, and it's again, not an individual or, or a community. It's like finding that balance where everybody can have maximum health, maximum contribution. And we don't know, humans don't want it easy. They they do want a little bit of tension. They don't want a lot of tension. Back to your optimal growth, you know, uh, concept. And so it's not a matter of, you know, I want to have a lot of money. I don't want to work because that actually is not a fantastic life to be living. What it is, is like having a safety net so that I'm not anxious about paying the bills every day. That's, that's pretty important. Um, and, but then striving and, and I've heard that our brains actually have this duplicity of wanting to be lazy and also to strive for improvement. Right. And how do you balance that within your own brain? Yeah, well, I think that that's where the, that neat you know, way of looking through the IFS lens, the internal family systems, it says we all have these different parts that are operating to achieve different objectives. And we have to find that true self to navigate between these different parts. And so there's, you know, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. And people are listening <laughs> I was just thinking that coming back to generation wealth transfer. <laughs> Generational wealth transfer, and we can even imagine, right, the, the child of the automobile industry executive grows up and sees that alongside the child growing up of the union member working in the automobile and their experiences of the world, the stories that they hear about the other one are all shaping their experience and expectation of money. And I think to me, one of the biggest blessings and, and encouragements of financial therapy is for all of us to slow down yeah. and reflect on our relationship with money. And I think you were, I think you is what you're going to is that what one person does impacts another. And this for me ties back to the myth of financial independence, 
Yeah. We have this idea that we're independent and what we do, I think the trickle through effect is we don't think what we do really impacts anybody else, but we're actually so deeply interdependent or interconnected that I can't do one thing without it impacting something else, mm -hmm. both within mm -hmm. myself and outside of myself. What I do, like how I just spent this hour with you has some noble impact and some less than noble impact, but it, it trickles through to my wife and what she gets from me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so mm -hmm. what we all, I, I think I want people to do is just be real. We have these internal parts that are connected with each other, the protector, the inner child, the true self, we have these external parts, you and I are connected. We're having synergy. So there's pleasure. That was my <laughs> assumption. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> You know, to slow down and take a step back, because a lot of times also we get really myopic on we need more and more and more money and we don't realize the impact on the people around us. And so taking a, a, a clarity break and saying, you know, it, it do we need more money? And if we didn't have more money, what would happen? If if I work less hard, what would happen? You know, how how could we how could we have a better family life with and without money? And, you know, it's a whole package. And I'm also going to say that one thing that people forget about when passing down wealth is if you just pass down money with nothing else, it dissipates. And one of the things that I've realized in studying generational wealth transfer, studying families that have been successful, studying families that haven't been successful, one of the really key things is talking about your values. And that's not a money conversation. That's, you know, what's important. And then money just right. goes on top of that, right? And if you already have family system problems, pouring money on it is going to cause a fire. <laughs> so, you know, taking care of the right. family, the, the system and the communication is absolutely key before you start putting money on top of it. But then also when you start putting money on it, realize that you earn this money in a certain way and you had a certain knowledge and skill set and whatever and your ch children that are receiving it came from a different place so a you know you struggled maybe to get this and they did not struggle you cannot really cause them to struggle like you did because their life is different than your life you can never have them experience what you experience so just like hold on to that let go of the fact that you want to try to give them some of those experiences you have like you're not ever going to give them the experiences you have because they are living a different life but you can allow them to have challenges and you can challenge them to you know learn about money learn about if they're going to come into the family business learn about business and learn how to run a business and all of that and not just assume that because you could did it that they can do what you did you know so you might have to even bring in some consultants from the outside to help them get where they need to go to be successful on their own but they really and and what i've learned from the very wealthiest families is that they actually don't give money to the the, the people they'll, they'll have a safety net like everybody will be able to go to college you know nobody will starve that kind of right. thing but they don't give money they they loan money and the 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 generation next generation has to give it back and it allows them to be an entrepreneur and if they fail you know it's family money and there's enough of it you know they didn't like lose all the family money and stuff but it allows them to have those challenges and those experiences without giving the money and then them thinking money grows on trees it doesn't really matter because they need to give that 
back at some point. Um, but it gives them that experience. And I think that's, that was a, an eye opener to me that the most successful way to make your kids successful and to be able to transfer that generational wealth is not by giving it to them, but by using it to support them to become wealthy themselves, independent of the family wealth. So powerful. So Tara, if people are listening to this conversation and saying, I'd really like to talk with Tara more about her, her work and what she's doing, what's the best way for people to reach out and connect? Um, probably if you are interested in being a client, um, on our website, which is South Bay Financial that's with an S, um, there is a let us help us you button. And, uh, if you click that, there's a little survey that just sort of tells us what you're about and you can sign up for a 15 minute conversation with us. That's the best way to sort of get in and let us know a little bit about you and, and find out a little bit about us. Um, and I am on LinkedIn and, uh, Facebook. I used to be on Twitter. Um, but when the big black X came up, I, I don't like a black X on my phone. So I am not on Twitter anymore. Mastodon. You can find me on Mastodon. Um, and, uh, we're on Instagram. So those three, uh, social media and, and we have some, um, videos coming out on YouTube. Awesome. Sarah, yeah. thank you so much for your time, your energy and your passion around the psychology of money and helping folks. My pleasure. It was great being here. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed. Ed.